Welcome to the 18th installment of Milk and Bourbon. Today we'll be covering Deep Time Reckoning and The Wise Man Bourbon. To start off, just a, a brief overview of the book. This is a epistemological account of a Finnish research group that was attempting to prove to uh, a Finnish government organization that their storage of nuclear waste was going to be safe hundreds of thousands, even millions of years into the future. Um, for about a two-year time period, there was an anthropological professor, uh, I think he was doing his dissertation for his PhD, that followed them around and conducted interviews, all in an effort to create this dissertation, which I think he turned into this book, Deep Time Reckoning, or at least was the, the uh, inspiration for this book. And it essentially is trying to extrapolate some of the thought patterns and um, modalities that these scientists used to deep time reckon and to have like a very deep understanding of our, our place and the timeline of Earth. And he wanted to extend that knowledge to the common layperson, me, uh, on how they were going to treat the planet and um, how actions immediately need to be thought about on a much grander scale than what they're currently um, being thought about at. So really, the author is trying to expand our minds and how, how we perceive things. And he's trying to do it in a way that's easily digest digestible. And I, I would have to say that he did a pretty good job of that. <clears throat> but before we start, just a, a few quick key definitions um, that I think are important because I'll be talking about them. Um, anthropology, it's the scientific study of humanity. It's human behavior, um, how it influences culture, human biology, um, linguistics, on down the line. It's, it's essentially looking at how humans interact with each other and with uh, the space they work in, so the natural world. The Anthropocene is a positive term for the current era that we're in. On Earth's grand scale, there's epochs, and this is a term that's being used, Anthropocene, to um, denote the time. And there's been different times that they've mentioned, but usually very modern times on and how we've um, had an effect on climate change, erosion, um, rock formations, uh, water levels, on down the line. And the, the process is really difficult and may take a while. It might not ever be named this, but this is what he refers to in the book, and this is kind of what I'm going to refer this time period as. Um, shallow time discipline. So this is basically a surface-level view of the social and economic rules, conventions, customs, um, and expectations govern, governing the measurements of time. So basically, like, how we see what our actions are, are viewed at in the scope of time. How far into the future do we consider when we make decisions today? So shallow time discipline is denoting that we don't think very far into the future. Next quarter, maybe maybe next generation for, for the, the really um, strong thinkers, but it, it's really small in comparison to the 14 billion year um, universe and the four and a half billion year planet. 
And when you're talking about disposing of nuclear waste, which is something that's become common practice or will become common practice as we continue to use it for energy needs, we have to start considering a little bit beyond the next generation. And this can be brought forth into a lot of different practices that we use today. I will be mentioning plastics if you were concerned about that. That is definitely one that this book brought up to me a lot that I really want to focus on, and I will devote some time to that. And then finally, the final definition is the deflation of expertise. It's this troubling regression of trust and belief in experts. Uh, it's our what some view as a very he healthy skepticism of people um, in positions of authority or or are perceived to be in positions of authority. It's just our increased resistance um, and resentment towards people that, and it could be a, a wide variety of reasons why we resent, and, and some of them are very well-founded um, and come from a very reasonable place, but it's, it's this inherent distrust that we see. And it's led by, I think, this is stemming away from the definition now, I think that in very large part is due to media coverage and sensationalism of various issues and less to do with that absolute fact. Um, and even now, absolute fact is called into question as we recognize that people's perception um, are, can be vastly unique and very different and sometimes very disparate. But before I go into what this book did for me as far as thinking about uh, various issues, is I wanted to highlight a couple different organizations, uh, not only for the work that they, they do, but also for the ideas that they inspire. So first is CGIAR, CGIAR. Um, it's an international intergovernmental group uh, focused on research and solutions for the food community. So really just the small task of solving poverty and world hunger. That's all. Not much to write home to mom about, but it's it's a group that is very large, uh, very well-funded, or at least in my estimation, very well-funded. And um, they have their hands on a lot of different, very interesting topics. And they've done a lot of research to support some of their beliefs. And I think if you go to their website, you'll see some pretty interesting stuff. Next, Atlas Obscura. Now, this is not necessarily a research group, but it's a group that's um, it's mentioned in the book. It's brought together a bunch of varying people's ideas about interesting things to do in this world. It's really the goal from what I can tell of Atlas Obscura is to inspire and inject uh, some sense of wonder into um, the people that use the service. So uh, it covers some large cities and then some regions throughout the world it covers Good places to go for food, good places to go for history, interesting facts that you might not know. It's it's like this just catch-all for trying to reinvigorate the human soul. I think they're trying to, for the people that are that become downtrodden and, and kind of mired in the everyday uh, rat race, this is a good source to go to for when you're wanting to escape. And then finally, this is my favorite one that I think I'm going to probably get very involved in, is the Aspen Institute. Aspen Institute is a, a global think tank that tackles, I mean, you name it, um, business, security, uh, philanthropy, health, energy, justice, and it conducts research and then provides solutions. 
something I'm definitely going to get involved in uh, and look forward to learning more about. Potentially, this will fuel future um, endeavors on my podcast as well. haven't mentioned it too much, but I do believe that Nick and I are in talks to um, start a little bit of a different series within Milk and Bourbon um, where we realize that we're, we're fairly different in uh, how we approach problems, uh, which is kind of surprising given our backgrounds and this, their similarity. But uh, we've decided to try to start a model for maybe healthy uh, debate. And that actually leads me to my first point. The Finnish use a phrase, and it simply states, the issues fight, not the people. And kind of hinted at it earlier when I was talking about the, the distrust for authority because of uh, media sensationalism. And I think that it's, it's become increasingly popular to, talk, to try to sensationalize everything. And the way people do that is they pick their side of the argument and take it to an extreme and then silo themselves in that argument and insulate themselves from outside ideas and become very one-dimensional and closed-minded. Uh, the Finnish don't have that belief, and I think they, they do well because of it. The issues fight, not the people. I think it's a great way to try to prevent from losing sight of seeking solutions and instead um, focusing on the issue at hand and recognizing that it's not the persons that are fighting. It's not the vehicles of the messages. It's the messages themselves that are at contention. Uh, and I think Nick and I do a really great job of maintaining our mutual respect while also having very, sometimes very opposing views. So that's definitely going to come. It's definitely something that I thought about again when I was reading this book, the concept that in order to, to really solve these issues, you have to put your pride aside. It's no longer about you. It's about the idea. It's about the message and uh, using that to achieve results. Another thing, and I, I don't want to focus on the problem here. I want to focus on possible solutions. And that's why you're going to see me kind of glaze over the problem of deflation of expertise and instead focus on possible ways to move forward, namely for America. So again, deflation of expertise is because of a multitude of reasons people have stopped trusting um, technocrats, so the experts, or, or representatives that are in places of authority, uh, and for good reason uh, in many cases. But obviously, a fully functioning democracy requires a little bit, a modicum of trust between the governed and the governing. Um, <clears throat> I think it also requires a little bit of a, a, a perspective shift on the governing in that the governing are put in position by the people, for the people. And I think that's something that kind of gets lost when people get to these high reaches of government. I believe that they think that it no longer is about what the people want, but what they believe is best. I believe that happens. I don't know how, how often, but I know it does. And so I think a, a perspective shift is definitely required on their part, but it is also required on our part. In the media's part, in that one step one, place experts, technocrats 
in positions and give them avenues to um, publicly address people in positions of power. Number two, reduce research groups and, and research in general the dependency they have on funding from private organizations. I think that the researcher is too beholden to the whims of what could potentially be corrupt or self-serving entities, companies, individuals, um, and, it, and it really hamstrings them in, in achieving really solid, trustworthy results. Stop funding research through private organizations. Find some, some sort of way, some government funding that's oversaw by a panel of people from different opposing entities that can govern that kind of stuff. By doing this, we reduce the time constraint that's placed on these researchers where they're expected to have results quarterly um, because that's what's tied to the, the financial reports that are released quarterly. By doing that, you're forcing researchers to release um, slipshod discoveries or inconsequential discoveries and try to, you're forcing them to try to exalt uh, or sensationalize some of these results. Discovery takes time. After all, they are discovering it for the first time. Give them the time they need to provide meaningful research that could be for the betterment of mankind instead of demanding results quarterly or biannually. This stuff takes time. And then finally, introduce deep time reckoning experts into all companies, but especially to Fortune 500 companies um, by regulating these companies, not, not too much, but at least requiring them to do something along the lines of creating um, different panels for different periods of time. So you've already got the panel in place for the quarter, the year, maybe the decade. But really what you should be looking at is decades or centuries panels where these panels, these experts that are assembled that know what they're talking about can properly advise you on what you're doing now and how that could affect um, the world in years to come, um, centuries to come. Because what we're doing now when we're fiddling around with nuclear waste and plastics production, it's, we're having long-term effects beyond, beyond what we can even expect to, to understand and placing peoples of, of trustworthy nature that don't have a vested interest in the company in positions where they can influence uh, some of the actions taken by these companies. And like I said, I promised you I was going to talk about plastics. And I have to. I have to. This book reiterated to me the urgency and the importance of, of facing these scary, really large issues um, and, and tackling them one bit at a time. So there's, there's a, a geometric shape that exists in the stratosphere called a fractal. Um, it's very different from your circles or your squares. Um, I'll throw up like a, a fractal tree. Um, I found one online. It says the fractal tree to the 11th degree, and it, it mirrors what a family tree would look like. There's one 
um, head of the family, and then it splits off into a multitude of possibilities from there. And that's kind of how a fractal behaves. It, it, it's these semi-similar, usually, shapes that um, go down ad nauseum to an, infinite, an infinitesimally small size and also um, back up to a much larger and observable size. But what happens with these shapes is that when you manipulate some of the one-dimensional characteristics of these things, they don't, they increase um, at a far greater exponential uh, rate than a square or a sphere or a triangle or whatever. Anyways, that's kind of how time works. And that's kind of how like decision-making works. Uh, there are infinite possibilities out there for infinite um, amount of people. And the decisions that we make now will reflect and ripple out over time. It's with enough weight behind any one thing, you can change the course of history. And so what I'm trying to say here, looping back around to plastics, is that 9% of produced plastics are recycled in a year. Until recently, I thought the efficacy of recycling in general, metals, plastics, what have you, was a farce. Uh, I've, I had read things in the past where there was some fraud, waste, and abuse, and some misdirection in how they were actually handling recycling. And until recently, I held to that belief. Now, what's cool about when you keep your mind open is, um, I think Bill Nye said this once, someone asked him, hey, what is it going to take for you to change your mind? And he said, the slightest shred of evidence that would make me believe otherwise. And that's what's great about prescribing to um, organized methodical thought that factors into things like science <clears throat> is that when you're proven wrong you don't double down you start researching to see if there's some efficacy to it and then you continue down that path if it calls for it so plastics recycling can do a couple of really cool things let me spit some facts to you it takes 95% less energy to recycle aluminum than it is to create and fabricate it. Recycled steel saves 60% production energy. Additionally, scrap steel being used instead of uh, ore uh, takes 40% less water and produces 97% less waste. The National Recycling Coalition reports that recycling has created 1.1 million jobs in America. And then according to the UN Environment Program, 300 million tons of plastic is produced every year, and that's equivalent to the weight of the entire human population. What I see here are vast opportunities to improve. Um, this doesn't scare me. I mean, it does, but it doesn't. I see opportunity. I, I see avenues, very easily achievable avenues for us to fix where we're, where we're fucking up. And I think it's time that we like realize, recognize that we're fucking up. What's better than recycling though? Reducing. Um, every minute, 2 million plastic bags are being used across the, the globe. 2 million every minute. And they're only used for an average of like 12 to 15 minutes and then they're thrown away. Here's an easy way to stop being an asshole. Um, get your own bags. Use them for when you go get groceries. It's, it's, it's these little things, and this is what I was talking about with the fractal of time, with the fractal of decision-making. Small things can, can add up very quickly when done by billions of people or a community.
It doesn't even have to be billions of people. Start with yourself. Start with your family. Start with the community. Work your way up. Push for legislation that could help. It's illegal in like several parts of the world. Why can't we do it? We have the capability. We just don't want to. And it's because of that shallow perception of time and, and our decisions now and the weight that we put on what those decisions will do to our future. Just think about it. I'm off. I'm stepping off my my um, my soapbox here, and I'm gonna switch gears to bourbon because it's my favorite part of the podcast. All right, <clears throat> wise man. So this is a Kentucky Owl product. Well, it's the result of Kentucky Owl being contracted by the Bardstown um, Bourbon Company, which I guess is Ken- Kentucky's answer to kind of like Napa Valley in in California in that it's a collection of distilleries that are being contracted out by this company um, to mix new and interesting craft bourbons. Um, and I think it's in an answer to like the consumer's desire for stuff like this. Uh, Kentucky Owl uh, was a victim of prohibition and wasn't revived, I think, until 2014 by like the great-great-grandson of the original um, distiller for Kentucky Owl. Um, he left the company shortly after the new master distiller came from four roses. I think his name's John Rhea. And then pretty soon after that, um, Kentucky Owl was bought by Stoli, which was in turn, um, contracted out by this, um, Bardstown bourbon company. So this very large company is trying to answer to what craft distilleries are doing with their bourbons and creating craft bourbons, Kings County, townhouse, um, multitude others. It's, it's, I think vastly consumer driven and, um, it's a $60 bottle. So it's not nearly as much as the Kentucky Owl confiscated. It's a blend between four year old rye whiskey, five and a half year old bourbon and an eight year old bourbon. So it is a blend. Um, so don't, don't be fooled by the, the labeling here. It does say straight bourbon whiskey. That's not true. It's a blend. I um, What I failed to mention in the last podcast is I finished a four-month course uh, to learn the Spanish language. And ahora yo entiendo un poco español uh, y um, puedo hablar con eso algo tiempo. Entonces... Um, yeah, let's give this let's give this bourbon a try. I do I, I do respect Kentucky Owl. I think it's I always like when when distilleries are brought back to life. There's something about um, when I see failed businesses that just makes me sad, or or crumbling homes makes me sad. So when I see things like this, it it does give me a little bit of a happiness just knowing that uh, the Herculean effort to revive a brand. I can't imagine what it takes. So, to Kentucky Owl. I will say on the nose, kind of smells like honey. Um, but as I take it, there's some toffee notes as well. Obviously, always caramel, a little bit of vanilla. It it's I would say I would call it oaky. You can definitely get the oak in the palate. The finish is really short. Super short. Here today, 
gone tomorrow. Hmm. One more sip. I, I'm not sure yet. Oh, while I'm while I'm considering this, I I do have to give you my um, thoughts on the book. I'm gonna give it a two and a half out of five. Now I know. I'll tell you this. I think some parts of it were dull, but then there are parts at the end of every chapter, there were these things called reckonings where he was talking about what you could do as individual or what we could expect from experts to drive us towards a more uh, beneficial treatment of our planet. So those parts were interesting. I did like that kind of stuff. I, I do enjoy learning like interesting things like, for instance, Olka, uh, that naturally occurring nuclear fission um, location, which I thought was wild and also kind of dangerous, but eh, I digress. So two, two and a half, it did give me a space to like really think about things in a different way that I wouldn't typically think about them in an ordinary day. So I liked that. And then I liked that it gave me an avenue to kind of strengthen some opinions and some thoughts and some knowledge. Um, on things that I wouldn't typically have known. For instance, that fractal, it, it led me down a, a rabbit hole and uh, I arrived at a term called pedigree collapse. So 18 generations above yourself, you're supposed to have, I think it's like a million 48,000 grandparents because like just each generation, you're doubling the amount of grandparents you have. So at 18, you're supposed to have over a million grandparents and no one has that. And I wondered why and it's because at several points in your family tree, you've had people get together that had shared ancestors. So it's like this, this fallout of this fractal, fractal tree, and it reduces you know millions of grandparents down to like, I think that it was something like 60,000, which I know sounds way worse than it's supposed to be. Uh, the book brings brings you to a point where you you get to view things in a different way and i liked that i always like that kind of thing i like not having like those regular topical conversations i like getting a little deep with things i think it's interesting so yes buy the book if you are you know pass by it and you see it deep time reckoning no don't go out of your way and now for the bourbon the most important part. I'm going to give it a 2.8 out of 5. But that calls it. Another successful podcast complete. Uh, I owe, as always, as always, I appreciate you guys coming on, um, spending time out of your day, watching me blabber on about fractals and uh, plastics and uh, finishing, whatever, what name, what, what, whatever you want to call it, but I appreciate you guys. I want to thank you for coming on yet again to another installment of Milk and Bourbon. And as always, we finish with a toast, and it gives me another reason to try, to continue trying this bourbon. To you guys. Up to it. Down to it. Damn the man that can't do it.